Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place where you can be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. We just want to keep you guys up on the literature, and so we're doing all of this for you. Now let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we covered over this past week on the blog, and I'm going to cover over this episode. First off, breaking news. Do we have something new for you guys or is this just more COVID? I'm not sure. Second, monoclonals perhaps too specific for their own good. Third, lots and lots of calcium and how to get rid of it. Fourth, EMS and the pediatric airway. What are we doing? And that'll help us decide what we should be doing. Fourth, corporate fingers in your business. It's not all bad, but honestly, ugh, it's not all good. Now then, if you're hearing my voice right now, then you are not currently a journal feed subscriber or you've subscribed to both our feeds, which I'm fine with. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Anyways, if you're not a journal feed subscriber, then you're just not receiving the full journal feed experience. You're not getting the full journal feed podcast. And so you'll only be receiving a portion of the past week's articles. Don't worry though, we, we select the best ones for you. But if you would like to get full access to both the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. We've got lots of details. It's all very well laid out on there. Now then, there is a fee, but we don't want money to ever be a barrier to the best patient care that you can provide. So if there's any problems, if you have any question that you will have too much trouble affording this, then please get in contact with us and we'll help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the popular Megan Breed, Lauren Murphy, Andy Hogan, and Clay Smith. Now, astute listeners will have noticed that I use a different adjective to describe the authors every single week, and we are at almost 120 different adjectives now, and I'm kind of starting to run out. So if you would like to help me out, you could leave a review on the iTunes store or wherever and use a pleasant, complimentary adjective to describe the show. And then I'll try to use that in one of the upcoming episodes. Try to use one that I haven't used already, though. Really appreciate that. That'd be cool, guys. All right, let's get on to the first paper. A bunch of papers, actually, which were collected from the WHO, the Lancet, the BMJ, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, and all of these were just put together to bring you breaking news. So, a little bit of preamble. It's not uncommon to see kids with GI complaints, but we've got something new for you today, something new for you to worry about, unfortunately, and that's a new acute hepatitis. New enough that I don't think we even have a name for it just yet. So cases of this acute hepatitis have been recognized in several countries all around the world. These outbreaks have occurred in children less than 16 years old, but mostly in kids less than 5. The cause of it, not entirely clear. These cases look like typical GI symptoms of abdominal pain, vomiting, and diarrhea, but they could be accompanied with jaundice, and this jaundice is from the acute hepatitis. It's not mild disease either. These can be quite severe cases of hepatitis, with as many as 10% of the 170 cases that have been reported requiring transplant. Now, there seems to be some correlation with adenovirus infection, most commonly the subtype 41F, which could be triggering a T-cell activation causing reaction against the liver. 
Now, all of this is related to recent or possibly concurrent COVID infections. This adenovirus was not previously known to cause any hepatitis in the past, so this is new. Most of the patients were not yet old enough to be vaccinated, so there does not seem to be any link with COVID vaccination. Thankfully, don't want anything to muddy those waters. All this just to say that you should look out for jaundice in kids with acute GI illnesses right now. Well, actually, always. I'm not going to say that you weren't going to be worried about any jaundice before, but still, you know, just think about ordering some transaminases, which could be in the thousands with an elevated bilirubin. Best protection is going to be protection from the adenovirus, which you can protect yourself from by washing your hands, as if you haven't been told that enough over the last couple of years. In a spoonful, not that jaundice wouldn't have freaked you out before, but just keep an eye out for kids with GI symptoms and to jaundice, they might have this new acute hepatitis. All right, and then we're gonna skip over to my next favorite article, article number three titled Cancer-Associated Hypercalcemia out of the New England Journal of Medicine. Hypercalcemia. Not an electrolyte I actually remember talking about on the podcast before, but it's relevant. The most common cause is going to be cancer, since around 30% of cancer patients may develop hypercalcemia at some point during their disease course, and it's not a very good prognostic marker. Most cancer-related causes are due to parathyroid hormone excretion or a mimic thereof and the rest are due to bone invasion. Now there's a long list of cancers which are more commonly going to cause hypercalcemia, but I think it's too long and kind of burdensome. It's really diverse. It doesn't just like isolate itself to one kind of cancer, so I don't think it's very useful. I'm not gonna list it off here. Of course, there are other reasons that non-cancer patients could also get hypercalcemia, like good old-fashioned hyperparathyroidism, some medications including excess vitamin A, vitamin D, and even some granulomatous diseases. So, of course, you're going to have to keep those in mind, too, since you're not just going to be ordering just an ionized calcium level. You'll want other things like magnesium, phosphate, parathyroid hormone levels, TSH, and maybe even vitamin D. And then along with that, you can get some cancer-specific testing as necessary. Phosphate is a particularly nice one to get because a low phosphate suggests that there's been hyperstimulation of the parathyroid hormone receptors, which act to lower phosphate. So that's a helpful one, it'll kind of tip you off. So some common symptoms are nausea, vomiting, anorexia, constipation, weakness, bone pain, and in severe cases, you get confusion and altered mental status. That, of course, is the classic moans, groans, stones, bones, and psychiatric overtones. Okay, now then, treatment. First and foremost is going to be hydration. These patients can be severely dehydrated by the, like I said, nausea, vomiting, anorexia, and, and which I didn't mention, nephrogenic diabetes insipidus, which is caused by your body trying to naturally pee out all the calcium, which is exactly what we want your body to do, so we're going to give lots of fluids. Normal saline is probably a good choice unless they're acidotic. Yes, of course, I know lactated ringers contain some calcium but it's at a much lower concentration than their serum calcium is actually going to be, so it's still going to act to lower their overall calcium. And now that's most of what you're going to do in the acute phase. The kidney's going to do pretty much all the work. Loop diuretics used to be used as part of the package, but have not been shown to help, though you could still consider them if you're concerned about fluid overload. Okay, but that's not all the treatment we do. We also try to stop bone resorption. 
and this is primarily done with bisphosphonates, the best being 4 milligrams of IV zolendronate. Keep in mind, though, that this can take a few days to actually take effect. You can bridge the gap between bisphosphonate effect and starting the medication with calcitonin, all of which can be started at the very same time as you're giving fluids. So just bundle it all together. If this person has to go to the ICU, then they'll say thank you later because everything's going to be acting faster. Be careful about renal insufficiency, though, which could be worsened by bisphosphonates. In the case of renal failure, dialysis is an option. This is a dangerous condition and is benefited by prompt treatment started in the emergency department, so keep those three simple steps in mind. In a spoonful, hypercalcemia is most commonly due to cancer. Treatment is going to be with lots of fluids and then stopping bone resorption with bisphosphonates. Alright, let's move on to the fifth article titled Corporate Control of Emergency Department Dangers from the Growing Monster out of the Journal of Emergency Medicine. Now, as I've mentioned a few times, I happen to be Canadian, and so I didn't feel like it was appropriate for me to comment so emotionally and so thoroughly on the American system specifically. But our best friend of the podcast and the guy who kind of runs the show, Clay Smith, he wrote such a nice piece about this for the blog. And so I just wanted to share that with everybody as best as I could. And who better to read Clay's words than, well, Clay himself. Here he is. Hey, this is Clay. Uh, I'm recording this particular post. So as many of you know, um, there is some corporate influence in the practice of emergency medicine. And this is a post that's surely to offend everyone. Because if you're a leader in an emergency department contract management group, or if you work for a so-called nonprofit like me, this article steps on all of our toes. So know this, it's not my intent to offend anyone, but we do need to talk openly about issues facing our specialties. So we're going to jump in. There are laws against the corporate practice of medicine. Medicine is meant to be between a doctor and a patient. And corporate influence to do more unnecessary things to increase profit or to do fewer necessary things to reduce expenses, that really harms patients. Um, I've tried to fairly present the author's opinions, but I've also tried to present the other side. Now, this article is a little bit longer than our usual journal feed uh, because it's such a critical issue. Um, so how has the corporate control of emergency medicine groups changed the landscape for us? Well, we're going to tiptoe through this minefield together. So this was an opinion piece with this objective, to describe the growing corporate influence in the practice of emergency medicine and associated dangers to the public safety and well-being. So this is the author's point of view as you read it, and it's not favorable toward corporate emergency medicine control. The authors make the case that corporate control of emergency medicines become a major issue. Um, companies employing physicians have now been backed or are owned by private equity or publicly traded corporations a lot of the time, and this is big money. From 2010, $42 billion, to 2019, $120 billion, there's been a threefold increase in the amount of spending in this area. The authors argue that like an emergency, uh, like, like a fire department, an emergency department serves a public good. It's more like a utility. They say we all need this 24-7, 365 expert care that emergency departments provide, um, and we should treat it differently. 
The problem is a lot of hospitals and health systems have merged or have been acquired. And so effectively they have become monopolies, which means um, that they can uh, charge more. And a lot are owned by publicly traded corporations, which are beholden to shareholders and not patients. And then you throw in the entrance of private equity into ED contract management groups, and that just adds fuel to the fire because it ends up being a profit-first mentality. And a profit-first mentality means that a physician can be fired or threatened if they resist corporate directives, even if those are not necessarily the best for patient care. And we have a link in the the show notes that talks about this or in the blog post um, that is a link to a physician who was a whistleblower, raised the flag, and was fired. It also means that, as I mentioned, these hospitals and health systems can charge more. They can invent new charges, inflate old charges. The authors give one example that trauma activation charges for one publicly traded healthcare corporation were as high as $50,000. So there's a profit motive there. Now, up to 50% of emergency physicians are employed by ED contract management groups, and many of those are backed or owned by private equity. And that means that half of you in the U.S. that are readers of Journal Feed are reflected in the statement. And it's not just EDs. It's radiology, anesthesia, hospitalist, orthopedic surgeon, intensivist groups. Many different groups of physicians are effective. And this may mean that physicians lose due process rights and often have to sign a contract that denies them the right to a fair hearing regarding termination that other members of the medical staff might possess. Also, some contract management groups or corporations can exert pressure to admit patients, to increase charges, to perform more tests, upcode to the highest level visit, and many of them don't allow access by the physicians to see what has been billed in their name. And that's not to mention non-compete clauses. Another concern raised by the author is the increased control of corporations over education in the form of a proliferation of new residency programs. And they worry this is an attempt to flood the market with physicians to force lower compensation, which, you know, that would be in keeping with recent EM workforce projections that predict an oversupply of emergency physicians by 2030. The authors state, quote, having a private equity-backed company employing the teachers of the next generation of emergency physicians doesn't seem to be a good idea for patients, end quote. Now, on the other hand, some argue that we need to be cautious. It's possible to get workforce calculations wrong. Historically, anesthesia did that and ended up with an undersupply. The, some would argue, and I have a link in an EP Monthly piece, that we're one team no matter where we trained and we need to support all emergency physicians as well as ensuring business interests don't supersede the, the needs of educating the workforce. It, but I would also say that it's important to realize that healthcare is a business and learning about this during residency from, um, you know, by working for a, a corporation-backed residency, that's, that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world and could be smart because it's the reality that we live in for sure. The authors propose the following solutions to minimize the profit motive. First of all, they say we need to treat ED care more like a utility. Um, they would advocate for capping charges. Uh, they certainly advocate for protecting physicians who blow the whistle on bad practices or unsafe conditions. They really say that there needs to be enforcement of the prohibition of the corporate practice of, emergency, of, of medicine, emergency medicine specifically. They say that we need open books so physicians know what is billed in their name. 
We need transparent ED pricing, and we need to revise rules for so-called nonprofits. Um, they also would advocate for restricting healthcare corporation lobbying, and they say CEOs need to be held accountable when they violate state and federal rules. Essentially, what the authors are calling for is legislative and regulatory solutions. So now I'm going to offer my take, my opinion. I think it's important to openly acknowledge there are ED contract management groups that are doing this right. They're providing needed staffing with high-quality physicians, and they're doing it using smart business sense. But it's also important to acknowledge that many corporations and ED contract management groups are not doing this right. And that's why these authors are publicly calling for heightened external control. I must say, I am very wary of the government coming in to save us through increased legislation and regulation. So is there some sort of an alternative? Now, if you're a reader and you're leading a corporation or an ED contract management group, please consider what these authors are saying. Um, then get the full text to this article and read it. And feel free to email me. I'll send you a copy. There's not everything that's going to apply to your situation, but is there a kernel of truth that does? Also, if you're an investor, consider medicine isn't like any other kind of business. It's a business of one human entering into the suffering of another human in a position of trust to do them good and avoid harming them. A profit-first mindset is not welcome and doesn't work in this sacred space. Now, I get it. Sometimes we need capital to keep the lights on, but there are places that are off limits for finance. For those of us who are physicians, we took an oath. I know that may seem old-timey, anachronistic, but it's highly relevant and important. We have a responsibility to do what is best for our patients. The doctor-patient relationship is unique, it's precious, and it's possible for this to be corrupted through undue financial influence. So ask yourself, is my employer or, or anyone else exerting financial pressure on me to influence the way I am caring for my patients in a way that makes me feel uncomfortable? And if so, what are you going to do about it? At the end of the day, you have to do right by the patient in front of you, period, no matter what the corporation, contract management group, insurance company, CFO, investor, shareholder, or other bean counter says you have to do the right thing for the patient. On the other hand, physician, do you need to listen to those on the business side more carefully? There are very real business realities that must be faced in order for you to have a good income and continue taking care of the patients every day. Are there smart ways that you can change that could be a win-win? It seems there's room for restraint and humility on both the business and the physician side. They, they worry that this is a growing monster, and I would say the only way to slay this monster is to work together and for all parties that choose healthcare to always put the patient first and not profit first. Um, so at the end of the day, the spoon feed... There's undeniable corporate influence in the practice of emergency medicine, and this could cause problems for patients or for those of us who take care of them. We really need to thoughtfully consider this. I would highly encourage you to post some comments on the blog. There's so many sides to this issue, and we really need to learn from each other. The authors present one side of this argument. I've tried to present the other side, but there's so much more to be said, um, especially from those of you that are working for ED contract management groups. I, my experience is limited. It's an academic medical center setting. I would love to hear from those of you who practice in different settings. So please drop some discussion into the, the comments of the blog, and, uh, and let's have a civil, fair-minded discussion about this. All right, after that, now then, let's do a quick wrap-up. First off, from the first article, 
New disease alert. Just keep an eye out for acute hepatitis possibly associated with the Dinovirus 41F and COVID infections. This will look like GI symptoms with jaundice. Then from the third article, hypercalcemia, pee it all away. Give them lots and lots of fluids to help them do so. And also, well, because they're dehydrated. You can also use calcitonin to bridge the gap between giving bisphosphonates, which you should give, and when those bisphosphonates actually start to act a couple days later. And then from the fifth article, just keep in mind that not everybody's interests are going to be the same as yours throughout the entire medical system. Some people are thinking a little bit less about patient care and a little bit more about lining their pockets, you know, just to keep that in mind. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org. The newsletter is, of course, the best way to make the podcast into that nice little bite-sized nugget of spaced repetition. Please share the podcast with your friends as well. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.